محمدًا رسول الله ويقيدي أدنو إليه ساجدًا بجبيني اقبل صلاتي وللصواب الدين بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن والاه أما بعد in our short class uh, last Wednesday, uh, we mentioned some of the uh, tortures and some of the trials that the Sahaba had to undergo in the early Meccan phase. And uh, today, inshaAllah ta'ala, uh, we will continue from where we left off. Uh, in our last class, we mentioned <coughs> uh, the tortures of Bilal, Ammar, Yasir, Sumayya, Khabbab ibn al-Arat, and uh, many of the other of the Sahaba, especially the Sahaba who were not from the Quraysh, from the Mawali, uh, from the slave class, because of course those Sahaba were not protected by the society of Mecca. Now the question arises, what happened with the Prophet himself? Did he undergo any physical torture, any uh, physical pain and suffering? There's no question that he underwent a lot of emotional, uh, a lot of uh, smear campaigns. But how about physically? Well, physically, no doubt that the Quraysh overall and the Prophet as well were relatively protected. But this does not mean that nothing happened to them. This does not mean that they were completely immune. Rather, we have a number of incidents in which the Prophet was physically harmed. Uh, eventually, of course, they talked about assassinating him and then they had multiple assassination attempts culminating in the grand assassination attempt that took place the night before the Hijrah, right? So, even the Prophet ﷺ suffered physically. And we have a number of incidents that have been narrated from this early period of time. Sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in His divine wisdom protected him. And sometimes for wisdom Allah knows he was not protected. And this is for wisdom Allah knows. Sometimes he is protected and sometimes he is not protected. So of the times that he was protected, there was a time when uh, Abu Jahl, when Abu Jahl, was boasting to his peers, to his uh, colleagues in Quraysh. And Abu Jahl said to the people that I swear by Allah and Al-Uzza that if I see this man again, one more time, the Prophet ﷺ, I am going to put my foot on his neck, meaning when he's in sajda. I'm going to put my foot on his neck and I'm going to throw sand onto him. Because the Prophet ﷺ was one of the few people who would pray in front of the Kaaba. Most of the Muslims would not pray in front of the Kaaba. Most of the Muslims would uh, pray privately in their homes. But the Prophet ﷺ was one of those few who would pray publicly in front of the Kaaba. And they got irritated at this and they said, I, Abu Jahl said, that the next time I see him, I swear by Allah and Al-Uzza that I am going to put my hand, my foot on his neck. And the Prophet ﷺ came that day, Abu Huraira narrated, and he started praying. And when the Prophet ﷺ went into sajda, Abu Jahl came forward trying to or attempting to put his foot on the neck of the Prophet ﷺ. But before he got to him, the people around him saw that he turned backwards. He started walking backwards and he started pushing with his hands away and they couldn't see what was happening. And when he returned back, they said, what happened? What happened to your threat? Why did you walk away? We, we saw you putting your hand out. And so uh, Abu Jahl said that I saw between me and him a pit of fire. I saw between me and him a pit of fire and there were wings hovering above that fire. 
When the Prophet finished, he told the Muslims that this fire was brought by the angels. The wings were those of the angels. And had he taken one step closer, the angels would have shred him basically to bits and shreds. They would have shredded him into bits. And because of this, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the conclusion of Surah Iqra. The first five verses are the first verses of the Quran, and then Allah revealed the rest of the verses. This is a reference here. Have you seen the one who tries to stop the slave when he worships? And meaning Abu Jahl. Does he not know that Allah is watching him? If he doesn't stop doing this, if he doesn't stop coming close, we are going to grab him with strength from the nasiyah. This is the nasiyah. We're going to grab onto him. Now this is an expression in Arabic. For those of you who are act, uh, have any interaction with camels and the farms, if you hold on to the forelock of a sheep, a goat, a cow, you are holding, the animal is in your control. Right? So this is a expression in Arabic, which means he will be in our control completely. This is a nasiyah, it's a head, it's a brain that is full of lies and it is a wrong uh, brain. Uh, it's completely deluded. Let him call whomever he wants. Nadia, this is an allusion to the nadi of the Quraysh. What is the Nadi of the Quraysh? It's the parliament of the Quraysh. And he was sitting in the Nadi of the Quraysh when he said this threat. When he said this threat, he's sitting in the parliament, in the Nadi. And he says to the people in this Nadi, what is the parliament? The parliament is one area uh, of the Kaaba, one area of the Haram. This was where they would sit. Abdul Muttalib would have his high chair over there. That was the Nadi. And so Allah says, فَلْيَدْعُ Nadia. Let him call these people that he's boasting to. سَنَدْعُ zabaniya." We are going to call our helpers, and that means the special angels. Don't worry about him. Wasjud, you do your sajda. Right? So, if you understand the story, Surah Iqra comes completely into uh, place here. That the Prophet is doing sajda and he is praying, and Abu Jahl is trying to stop him. And uh, this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, revealed in the Quran that uh, all of this is a reference to Abu Jahl. In this case, Abu Jahl was unsuccessful. Allah Azza wa Jal, in a wisdom known to him, wanted to protect the Prophet this time. It is also narrated, Urwa ibn Zubayr. Uh, and Urwa ibn Zubayr, as we said many times, Urwa ibn Zubayr himself is not a Sahabi. He was born right after the death of the Prophet ﷺ. His father is Zubayr ibn al-Awwam, and that is the cousin of the Prophet ﷺ. And uh, his uh, mother is Asma binti Abi Bakr, and that is the sister-in-law of the Prophet ﷺ. And his aunt is Aisha, and his older brother is Abdullah ibn Zubayr. He is the most famous Tabi'i in terms of lineage. Unfortunately, or Allah willed, he did not become a Sahabi because he he was too young. His older brother by 30 years is Abdullah ibn Zubayr. But he himself is much younger. And so he never met the Prophet So Abdullah ibn Zubayr asked Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As. 
another famous Sahabi from Mecca. Tell me the worst thing that you saw happen to the Prophet ﷺ in Mecca. And this shows us, I mean, this is a curiosity. Imagine if you had been of that generation. You too would want to ask those who had witnessed, right? What happened? Tell me. So he wanted to know, what is the worst thing that you saw that the pagans or the, the mushrikun did to the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ? So Abdullah ibn Amr narrates what he saw. And he says, once the Prophet ﷺ was praying next to the Kaaba, when Uqba ibn Abi Mu'ayt, Uqba ibn Abi Mu'ayt, he is one of those four or five who are considered to be the most dastardly, the most ignoble uh, of the enemies of Islam. I have said multiple times that you can divide the enemies of Islam, the enemies of the Prophet ﷺ, into two very general categories. Of course, there's a fine line. Uh, and it's sometimes difficult to place some people in the middle, but clearly there are two extremes amongst the opponents. There were those who were somewhat of a noble character, and they never stooped to low tactics. Low tactics meaning like this one, I'm going to step on his foot, I'm going to throw sand on him. Or what Uqba ibn Abi Mu'ayt is one of the, 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 the meanest characters, worse than Abu Jahl in his, uh, uh, if you like, ignobility. Right? This is the wor- really, Uqba is probably the worst, even worse than Abu Jahl. That's the other extreme. The first extreme, people like Khalid ibn al-Walid, Umar ibn al-Khattab. They're, they're angry, they're nasty, but they're not, maybe even nasty isn't a good word. They're opponents, but they don't get nasty. In other words, they're honorable opponents. Their tactics are, they're going to keep it above the belt as we say, right? Generally speaking, those who kept it a little bit noble, Allah eventually guided them to Islam. Greatest example, Abu Sufyan. <coughs> Greatest example is Khalid ibn al-Walid. Now these people, Umar ibn al-Khattab, they were not followers of Islam from the beginning, they were enemies and they did a lot of harm. But their harm was within the system as much as they could. Legally, using their tongue, sometimes they got physical, but even that was not ignoble. They didn't uh, torture innocent slaves like Umayyah ibn Khalaf did to Bilal. Right? They didn't do that type of stuff. Whereas we had the other opposite category, and this category, people like Abu Jahl, people like Uqba ibn Abi Mu'ayt, people like Walid ibn al-Mughira, the famous poet, the most famous poet of Mecca, right? that he, he wanted to keep his position, so he invents lies and he knows it's a lie. So that category of people, by and large, they were eliminated, and they were not guided to Islam. And so Uqba is one of them. So uh, Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As said, that one day the Prophet was praying in front of the Kaaba when Uqba ibn Abi Mu'ayt came from behind him. And he took off his thawb, his garment, could have been like a type of uh, shawl, and he threw it around his neck, the Prophet's neck, and began to choke him. Began to choke him. And the Prophet was struggling with that choking, and the people did not intervene at all. Until finally Abu Bakr was told that your companion is being tortured. And so he rushed to the masjid and he began beating up from behind now because now he's the process of being uh, choked from behind. And so he attacked uh, Uqba and he said to him, Are you going to kill a person just because he said, he says, My Lord is God, my Lord is Allah? That's why you're going to kill him? And 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed verses in the Quran and to this day is in there. This exact phrase of Abu Bakr, Allah quoted him in the Quran. And this verse is now a verse in the Quran. And Allah Azza wa Jal quotes Abu Bakr saying this in the Quran. And this shows us Abu Bakr is not a regular Sahabi. He is somebody whom Allah has explicitly mentioned is a Sahaba, right? The only person whom Allah testifies is a Sahabi. By name basically, not, well, not by name but by indirect name, right? When he says to his Sahabi, to his companion, and Allah quotes Abu Bakr in the Quran, and we said the only other Sahaba who has been quoted by name is who? Zayd, right? So these are the two Sahaba, they are definitely at a different level than the other Sahaba. And so, in this time, Allah Azza wa willed that Abu Bakr save the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And there are other examples of this nature where they physically uh, harmed him. Sometimes the harm was not physical, but rather emotional. It wasn't that he was going to die, like this time they tried to kill him, but it was rather that it was emotional distress, or it was something that, uh, a, a matter of prestige. And this is uh, of the worst that has been narrated in this case. Ibn Mas'ud narrates, and this version is in Bukhari, and it is mentioned in many books of hadith. Uh, Ibn Mas'ud narrates, and Ibn Mas'ud saw this as an eyewitness, and he could not do anything, because Ibn Mas'ud was of the slave class. Ibn Mas'ud was of not a Qurashi. Had he done anything, his life would have been taken immediately, uh, and they had to leave it to the others to do. So Ibn Mas'ud said that once the Prophet was praying again in front of the Kaaba, look they're usually attacking him in public in front of the Kaaba. Why? To drive the point, to make the point, to embarrass him, to humiliate him. When Abu Jahl and a group of his, a group of his ilk, of his peers were sitting around, around uh, each other and the day before a camel had just been sacrificed. Camels are not sacrificed on a daily basis. Once every few weeks, somebody's going to sacrifice a camel. So Abu Jahl said, Who amongst you will go to the carcass of that camel? In the, there is a dump area outside Mecca. There is an area where you would throw your trash. So who will go to the, the carcass of that uh, camel and bring the entrail, the intestine, the, 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 the guts, that which nobody's going to eat, it's been thrown away. Bring that and throw it on the back of the Prophet of Muhammad when he is praying to his Lord. Who can do this? It's a challenge. It's a challenge that he's giving now. Who's going to do this? And so the worst of them, Ibn Mas'ud says, the worst of them, Uqba ibn Abi Mu'id, the one that we just mentioned, the worst of them stood up and he went. Now can you imagine, this is a nobleman of Quraysh. Right? Can you imagine? He must have been wearing his fine clothes. He's, he's considered to be of the leaders. He goes to a dead carcass and he puts his hand inside this filthy decomposing body. And he carries with his own two hands entrails, blood, this, this disgusting uh, sticky substance. Can you imagine the hatred that is even more disgusting than the body? The hatred that it is in his heart for him to do this. And he comes from that yard from that uh, lot and he got, walks all the way into the city and the Prophet is still praying because as we know the process in prayer was long it's not like our prayer two minutes and we're over literally if you calculate it, some some of his prayers would be two three hours sometimes minimum will be 10 15 minutes right this is the prayer of the Prophet. so he waited for him to go into sajda the process is unaware of what's happening behind him and when he fell into sajda then uqba came and he dumped all of the stomach and the entrails and the intestine this big it's a camel it's not a trivial animal you know and he dumped it all onto 
the head of the Prophet ﷺ while he is in sajda. And all of it fell onto him and, and it, the weight of it was so heavy that he could not lift himself up. He could not lift himself up. Ibn Mas'ud said, فَاسْتَضْحَكَ الْقَوْمِ the people began to laugh so hard that some of them had to fall onto their sides and others were hitting themselves. You know how they do when they laugh like this. And others were hitting themselves. And I was standing from a distance looking, but I had no way to help. I didn't have mun'a, meaning there was nobody that would have supported me. I am Ibn Mas'ud, these are Abu Jahl and whatnot. Ibn Mas'ud is like Bilal and others, that they would have instantaneously been killed because they don't have any honor. This is not their society, they are slaves in this society. And uh, uh, I was of those who were seeing him, but I could not do anything. And the Prophet remained Sajid, remained in sajda until some persons went to tell Fatima who at this time was probably around eight, nine years old, went to tell Fatima that your father needs your help. Somebody with some mercy, we don't know his name, whoever he went to Fatima, the daughter of the Prophet And so Fatima was a Juwaidiya, was a little girl, Ibn Mas'ud is saying. She was a little girl at the time, and she began crying and running towards the Prophet and helped him get this dead animal off of his back. And the Prophet then stood up, he managed to stand up, and he turned and he faced them. And he raised his finger up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and when they saw him in this fashion, they became quiet. And he began making dua against them by name. Allahumma alayka bi Abi Jahl. Allahumma alayka bi Uqba ibn Abi Mu'ayt. Allahumma alayka bi... And he mentioned every single one of them. And he mentioned each of them three times until all of them had a deadly pale in their faces. The blood drained from their face. And the people that are mentioned here, Abu Jahl ibn Hisham, Utbah ibn Rabi'ah, and Shayba ibn Rabi'ah, uh, Walid ibn Uqba, Umayyah ibn Kharaf, Uqba ibn Abi Mu'ayt. Ibn Mas'ud said, and there was a seventh and I forgot his name. Seven people were in this uh, nadi, in this gathering. And then Ibn Mas'ud said, so I swear by the one who sent Muhammad with the truth, that I myself saw every one of these seven dead in the battle of Badr. The first engagement, Allah took care of all of them. The first engagement that took place, every one of these seven, as I said, the, the enemies that didn't have any nobility, they were, there's no point. Allah did not save them. They, they don't have any good in them. This is not, this is, this shows you have no humility, no, completely callous, your hearts are sealed. So every one of these seven, Ibn Mas'ud said, I swear by Allah, I saw with my own eyes. Every one of these seven, I saw them dead in the battle of Badr, and I saw their bodies dragged into the well and thrown into the well of Badr. And eventually, of course, the matters got worse than this, and talk began of uh, assassination. It is narrated in Ibn, Ibn Is Ishaq that once the news spread that they had planned to assassinate the Prophet and uh, a, a neighbor told Fatima, that uh, a lady neighbor told Fatima that, you know, they're talking about assassinating your father. And Fatima uh, ran home and told the Prophet that uh, they're planning to assassinate you. And the Prophet said, uh, fear not, Allah Azza wa will take care of me. Bring me water. 
And so she brought him water. He did wudu. He made dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he walked into the masjid. And this is towards the end of the, the, the Meccan era. So I'm making incidents together. This is not in the beginning. Towards the end of the Meccan era. Because the assassination talk only began uh, in the 8th, 9th, 10th year of the da'wah. Right? We're still, technically we're still in the 4th, 5th year. But I'm just giving you some examples. Uh, so... Uh, they said we're going to assassinate him and they had their weapons prepared. So he did wudu and he walked into the masjid and they had their arms and they were ready to kill him. But not one of them could move. They all became paralyzed. They could not stand up. And the Prophet took some sand and threw it at their faces while they're standing, while they're sitting and looking at him and they were completely paralyzed. And he said, Shahatil wujuh. May these faces be uh, cursed. And in this riwayah as well, the Sahabi says, every one of these were of those who were killed in the battle of Badr. Every one of these were of those who were killed in the battle of Badr. And there are many more incidents as well. Again, we cannot mention every one of them because there's too many. But the point I'm trying to stress, the Prophet himself was physically and emotionally uh, tortured. Now the question arises, Based on last week's halaqa and this week's, of all the torture, all the pain, all the suffering, a question should come to the mind of every one of us. We firmly believe that our Prophet Muhammad is the best Prophet, and all of the Prophets are great Prophets. We firmly believe that his followers were the best followers. We firmly believe that Allah loves the Prophets and loves the followers of the Prophets. So why then were they tested in this fashion and manner? What is the wisdom in such persecution, in such hardship? Why not just protect the believers and, and, and give them uh, immediate victory and cause them to have the Medinan state in Mecca? Immediately, let the people believe. And in fact, it's not just in our religion. Uh, even Jesus Christ, His followers were persecuted. And they suffered from the hands of the Romans, right? And the prophets before them, Moses and the followers of Moses, suffered at the hands of, of Pharaoh. Why did the prophets and their followers undergo so much suffering when they are on the side of Allah, they're on the side of God? What is the purpose of the greatest man on earth being tortured? Our Prophet Muhammad there's a dead carcass being thrown on him. Why? In response to this, there are many reasons, not just one. First and foremost, to remind them and through them to remind us that Allah did not create us to live a comfortable life in this world. There is a purpose for Allah creating us. And that purpose is the next world. Allah says that He is the one who has He has created life and death. Allah says, Allah is the one who causes you to laugh and causes you to cry. Every human being has good and bad things happen to him. Every human being laughs and cries. You have occasions where you're happy, you have occasions when you're sad. So Allah reminds them and through them Allah reminds us that you are not created to just live and, and live in this world. You have something greater and that is the next world. And therefore, of the wisdoms is to earn in whatever way possible, when I say earn here, of course, you don't earn paradise, but you earn Allah's mercy that will get you to paradise. You have to do something to gain that mercy from Allah. Paradise is too precious to be earned by a lifetime of good. No matter what you do, it's too, too much to be earned. But Allah will magnify the small that you do. 
And that will then give you Allah's blessings and that will then give you paradise. And so it is the wisdom of Allah to test mankind. To see those who are pure and firmly believe in Him and those who are worthy of being blessed in the Akhirah versus those who are not and those who are not worthy of those blessings. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, in Surah Al-Ankabut, Did mankind think that they would be left without being tested, without being tried? Verily, we tested the people before them. And through these tests, Allah will show who are those who are true and who are those who are hypocrites. Allah says in Surah Al-Baqarah, verse 214, Do you think you're going to enter Jannah just like that? Do you think Jannah is going to be given to you for free? And Allah has yet to test you. In another verse, and Allah, ha- and Allah has told you what has happened to the people before you. They were shaken and they were afflicted with hardships and with poverty until they called out, when will the help of Allah come? Verily the help of Allah is indeed close. And I already mentioned in last week's halaqa, Khabbab ibn al-Arat, the one whose slave owner, that lady, Umm Anmar, would take hot iron from the coals, from the furnace, and use it to torture him on his back. She would literally take this furnace, uh, this coal, the, the, the iron that was in the, in the furnace, and torture him with this. One day he came to the Prophet ﷺ, Khabbab ibn Arad, this one, and he said, Ya Rasulullah, ila mata? I mean, for how long? For how long are we going to be like this? You're the Prophet of Allah, aren't you? How long? For how long are we going to be tortured like this? Why don't you ask Allah to help us against these people? And so the Prophet ﷺ was sitting against the Kaaba, with his back to the Kaaba. He came forward to show the importance. He came forward to, to show the importance of what he's going to say. And he said, indeed the people before you, the people before you, they would be tortured worse than this. And they would have a comb of iron. One of them would have a comb of iron that would strip his flesh off of his bones. And another would have a saw or a knife cut himself in half so that he would be completely cleaved. And still that would not turn them away from the worship of Allah. Verily, I swear to you by the one who has sent me that Allah will perfect this religion. Allah will perfect this matter until you will see a day in which a lady shepherd, a shepherdess, will take her flock from Hadramaut to Sana'a, very far away, two small villages or cities in Yemen, right? Forget Mecca. From Hadramaut to Sana'a, she's going to take a flock of sheep. And she will only be scared of Allah and the wolf to eat her sheep. A Muslim lady will do this and she's not going to fear anything. Now, that's exactly what happened many times in history. The, the peace, the security in Muslim lands was so much. And the Prophet said, Allah is going to fulfill His promise. But you are those who are being hasty. Notice, the Prophet had full faith, this religion will succeed. But there's going to be trials in the beginning. 
And you guys are being hasty about this. And subhanAllah, these punishments that the Prophet uh, described of iron combs and of being cleaved in half, this is exactly what happened to the early Christians at the hands of the Romans. Right? The Romans were a pagan nation until Constantine converted, as you know. Constantine in three, uh, 321 or so, he converted uh, and, and uh, adopted Christianity. Until that time, Romans were a pagan nation and they persecuted the Christians. The Emperor Nero burnt the Christians, he used the Christians as light bulbs. Literally, he doused them with petrol and he used them as light bulbs in his city of Rome. They became the light bulbs for a few days because he got irritated at them for some reason. They were persecuted much, uh, uh, very severely. In some cases, worse than the early Muslims. And so the Prophet is saying, there were Muslims before you, because the, we believe these to have been Muslims at the time. There were Muslims before you who were persecuted worse than this. And they did not swerve away from the worship of Allah. Allah is going to give you victory, but you need to be patient. And therefore from this we learn, and this is of the wisdoms of why they have to undergo so much hardships, that the blessings of Allah are earned through trial and struggle. They don't just come. You need to earn them through whatever tests come your way. فَإِنَّ مَعَ الْعُسْرِ يُسْرًا إِنَّ مَعَ الْعُسْرِ يُسْرًا With difficulty will come the ease. With the difficulty will come the ease. فَإِنَّ مَعَ الْعُسْرِ يُسْرًا إِنَّ مَعَ الْعُسْرِ يُسْرًا The يُسْر will come with the عُسْر. There must be the عُسْر, the difficulty. And then there will be the ease. Even the prophets of Allah are not handed the blessings on a silver platter. They need to struggle to earn it. They need to struggle to, sh to, to show it. And in this is wisdom. Because a later person could come and say, if they didn't undergo these struggles, suppose, and we 1,400 years later are undergoing struggles, then we will say, SubhanAllah, they didn't have any struggles. They're the Prophet of God. They came and Allah gave them peace and security instantaneously. Because they suffered worse than us, automatically we realize they were better than us. This is human nature. And this leads us to the last point of uh, some of the blessings here. The companions, and even the Prophet in his own way, they through these struggles clearly demonstrated their superiority over us. Without any question, they demonstrated. And you see it in their struggles. It's not just speech of Allah that Allah is pleased with them, they are pleased with Him. It's not just the speech of the Prophet that my Sahaba are the best of all generations. You see it in what they do, in how they live their lives. And even amongst the Sahaba, not all of them are the same. Those who converted in Mecca have a higher degree than those who converted in Medina. Those who converted in early Mecca have a higher degree than those who converted in late Mecca. The earliest who converted, they have a degree higher of the Muhajirin and then the Ansar. So Allah gave them preference depending on their level of Iman. And the last point is that we, so that we can have real examples, shining lights of guidance, such that when we face trial and tribulation, we can take comfort, we can find solace, we can find role models. And subhanAllah, there is no society that has undergone the type of persecution that the early Muslims of Mecca did. And therefore, every persecution that takes place, we can find some type of comfort when we look at what happened to the early Sahaba. Moving on to the next point in the seerah. When the Sahaba reached around, we don't know an exact number, but roughly a ballpark figure, around 20 or 30. 
of the Sahaba were present, the Prophet realized that he needed a place to congregate. Because there was, they couldn't do so in Mecca, in the, in the Kaaba, because it was too public. A lot of Muslims were secret Muslims. They hadn't informed their relatives and friends of their Islam. Especially some of the slaves who had converted. They hadn't told their masters. So they needed a place that they could congregate. There was no mosque that they could pray in other than the Kaaba. The first mosque that was ever built in Islam was the Masjid Al-Quba. Masjid Quba was the first masjid ever built in Islam. There was no masjid before Masjid Quba. The f- a physical masjid, and that's why Allah calls it Awwalu Baytin Ussis Ala Taqwa. Right? Allah calls it in the Quran the first house of worship built upon Taqwa, meaning in Islam. So there was no masjid in Mecca. Uh, the Kaaba at this time is a holy land, but there's idols around it. There's no sanctuary. So the Prophet decided to choose the house of, as you all know, Al-Arqam ibn Abil Arqam. And his name is probably Al-Asad ibn Abdul Uzza. Uh, Al-Arqam ibn, Ab- ibn Abil Arqam is his uh, title, his uh, common name. Al-Arqam ibn Abil Arqam. And so Darul Arqam became the place where the Sahaba would meet. When did this happen? We don't have any year. But probably around, we would estimate around the, the middle of the third or the beginning of the fourth year. In other words, as soon as the da'wah went public, within a few months after that. Remember the da'wah went public after three years, right? After three years, the da'wah went public. Before three years, there is no public da'wah. So we don't have people converting that much. After three years, when the da'wah becomes public, all of this persecution begins. The Prophet needs a place, so he chooses the house of Al-Arqam. Now, question. Why the house of Al-Arqam? What is the wisdom behind choosing the house of Al-Arqam? The books of Sirah do not mention this. So we need to study who is this person, Al-Arqam, where his house was, and then we try to derive some benefit. Al-Arqam, point number one. He was from the noblemen of the Quraysh, but he was not from the tribe of Banu Hashim. He was from the tribe of Banu Makhzum. Who can tell me who is the most famous person from Banu Makhzum? Abu Jahl is from Banu Makhzum. So, by choosing somebody from the Banu Makhzum, automatically, nobody is going to suspect that a Makhzumi is going to help a Hashimi. Because there's huge rivalry between them. Right? So the Prophet is choosing somebody from the tribe, from a tribe that is a rival tribe. Now Islam is more important to Muslims than Mahzum and Hashim, right? But the Jahili Arabs cannot look beyond their 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 tribal their tribalism, their jahiliyyah. So the Prophet, number one, he chooses somebody from the Mahzum. So it's not going to be suspicious. Number two. Al-Arqam was of the first people to accept Islam. They say he was of the first ten. So clearly then he could be completely trusted. Because this is a secret place in Mecca. Nobody's supposed to know about it. So you need somebody that you can trust your life with. And so he chooses somebody who is of the earliest converts and they know him inside out. So he's of the first ten converts to Islam. Number three, according to one report, Al-Arqam had inherited this property from his father. He was a young man. 
probably in his late teens, maybe even 18, 19 years old. And so once again, this has added to the disguise that you wouldn't expect an 18-year-old kid to be such a brave, of course, 18-year-old for them was a young man. For us, they're considered kids still, but for that age, it was, he was a young man. Nobody would think that an 18-year-old would risk everything to help uh, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Point number four, according to another report, Al-Arqam had not announced his Islam. He had kept it secret. And so yet another added, if you like, uh, cover of secrecy. That nobody would know that Al-Arqam would be helping because they don't expect him to be a Muslim. Point number five, the house of Al-Arqam was located behind the mountain of Safa. Now, the mountain of Safa, you all know where it is. Is that in the center of Mecca or is it outside of Mecca? The center of Mecca. So, why would you want a secret meeting place in downtown? One would imagine you would want a secret meeting place on the outskirts where nobody would see you, right? Why would you want a secret meeting place smack dab in the middle of downtown Mecca, which is behind Mount Safa? Who can figure this one out? Hmm? And the, the, that will least uh, suspected place, right? I don't know. <laughs> True, but there is another point. Close by to what? Kaaba. The Kaaba. So, how will that help them? Okay, but there's still a much more. That's true, uh, but there's still a much more clearer point. They can monitor maybe the. Um, they can monitor the Quraysh. You're not going to be able to eavesdrop from inside the house, but maybe a point. Imagine if 40 people are walking towards a small house outside of Mecca. Yeah. Traffic. 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 Everybody has to go to downtown every day. Mecca, everybody has to go there every day. That's what you do in the afternoon. You, and when, you, when all of the chores are done, you go and you sit in the Nadi or around the Kaaba. That's what you do for socialization. So getting to that area, walking to and fro, is the most natural thing in the world. And so, as Dr. Saab said, it's basically right under their noses. That they're walking to a house that is smack in the middle of downtown because it's a stone's throw away from the Kaaba. You literally are attached to the, basically the, the area of the Haram, right? And so right before the, the, the Haram, they go into an alley and there's the house right there. And so when they walk out, it's as if people are going to think they're coming from the Haram. Or they're walking, they're walking to the Haram. So it's a location or an area that it would be very easy to explain why you're going in that direction and coming back from that direction. And why there's so many people coming and going basically around the Kaaba because they would do that every day anyway. And in fact, they would probably, we don't know this for sure, but we could assume they would probably make sure they even went to the Haram after they went out of the house and then come back so that they actually were physically in the Haram as well for a while. And so no suspicions are raised, right? And uh, there's no doubt as well 
and this we can infer from the sources. We don't, again, we have to, when it comes to these Sira reports, you need to be a little bit more analytical and thinking. You cannot just, uh, you just read it at a superficial level. There must have been a very common sense reason, uh, and that is his house must have been large as well. Right? Because we had at least, at least 40 people congregating in the house, and 40 is a large number for Mecca. Large number. So for 40 people to be in a room clearly means that the house of Al-Arqam was a relatively larger house as well. Okay, uh, and uh, it is, and of course, uh, the house of Al-Arqam, this is where Ammar ibn Yasir accepted Islam, this is where Suhaib al-Rumi accepted Islam, this is where Umar ibn Khattab accepted Islam. Remember the story of Umar ibn Khattab, we're going to come to that next Wednesday, when, uh, when Khabbab brought him, when, when he was going to kill his sister. Fatima, right? And then he repented, he changed his mind. And so when he made sure that uh, he's sincere, Khabbab brought him to Al-Arqam's house. And he gave the code word because there was, you needed a code word to get in. Uh, and he gave the code word. And Al-Arqam stared at him. Who have you brought here? How could you bring Umar ibn al-Khattab? I mean, have you lost your mind? Right? So he's bringing Umar to the house of Al-Arqam. Right? And he explains him, no, there's a reason. Let me speak to the Prophet And they bring Umar in and, and he accepts Islam. Right? So all of this is happening in the house of Al-Arqam. This is basically uh, this, the, the, the central station of where the Prophet was. And when you look at the reasons why this house was chosen, once again you find a lot of wisdoms. And you find clearly uh, the Prophet obviously was a highly, the most intelligent human being ever. He's not just choosing any random house. There's reasons why even this house is being chosen. The next major incident that is narrated in the seerah is the first immigration to Abyssinia. The first immigration to Abyssinia. When these tactics of open intimidation, of humiliation, of torture continued, the Prophet ﷺ eventually suggested to the Sahaba that this land has become too constricted for you. Why don't you emigrate? For those of you who want to, why don't you emigrate to the neighboring land of Abyssinia? For there is a Christian king there who is a just king. And he shall allow you to worship without interfering in your worship. And this announcement was made in Rajab, in the fifth year of the da'wah. So, the third year of the da'wah, he goes public. Less than a year and a half later, so you can imagine now, all of this torture we're talking about is happening in this year and a half. All of this hardship is happening in this year and a half. It gets so difficult in Rajab of the fifth year of the da'wah. This is still 6 BH, 6 before Hijrah. Don't get confused, don't think 5 AH. No, this is 5 after da'wah, which is not anything in our calendar. So we say 6 before Hijrah, because we have, or actually 7 before Hijrah, because the Hijrah is in the 12th slash 13th year of the da'wah. Right? You guys following this, right? 13 years in Mecca, or to be more precise, 12 years and some months in Mecca. Uh, and so this is around 7 BH, you can say, before the Hijrah. So, uh, in the fifth year of the Da'wah, in the month of Rajab, the Prophet ﷺ allows the Sahaba to emigrate to Abyssinia. Now, for most of us, dare I say all of us in this room, we will not understand what hardships this would mean to emigrate to a new land. Especially us here in America, we are so used to traveling from city to city and place to place. Most of us in this room, 
Most of us have lived in multiple cities in our lives. I myself have lived in four or five cities for years at times. And we're complete, it's natural to us because the world has changed immensely from in this time. So we don't understand that uprooting yourself from, you know, in, even a hundred years ago, the bulk of mankind, I think the estimate I read it somewhere was 90 something percent, they were, they were born and they lived and they died within 20 miles of the radius of where they were born of their father's house. This is the bulk of mankind. That, that's just the way it is. You take over what your father is doing and you live the local land and you, and you go on. And in Jahili Makkah, it was much more worse than this. You couldn't even emigrate to another city because, as we said, the whole concept of tribalism. As a Qurashi, you had to be linked to Makkah. That was your only way of survival. If you went to even Ta'if or Medina, the people there are not of your tribe. And you are second, third class. You don't have any izzah. You can be plundered, raped, looted. Anything could happen. Nobody's going to protect you. Because there is no government. There is no law. There is no society. There is no civilization. This is even within Arabia. Imagine going to a foreign land. On top of that, you don't have bank transfers. You're not going to take your wealth and then you know, wire it to the different land. No. Your property is your property. You can't sell it at market price because you're not telling anybody you're leaving. People are just going to take over it. When they, when they performed the actual hijrah to Medina, the Sahaba suffered a huge financial loss. Even Sahaba who were rich became poor in the migration. Because they couldn't take their money with them. It's too dangerous to carry your, your, your gold and silver with you. You cannot just carry it in an unarmed guard fleeing for your life and, 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 and property uh, from Mecca. And so... When you're making hijrah, what you're doing is you are entering into a strange world where you don't have honor, you don't have protection, you don't have a passport basically. And you are at the mercy of those around you. To make matters worse, they, are, they have been told to go to a land where you're not even speaking Arabic, where the people are not Arabs. It's a different culture. It's a land in Africa, in modern day Abyssinia, uh, Habasha, where the the, the culture, the people, everything is different. So, this underscores how difficult Mecca would have been for them to prefer going to Abyssinia over remaining in Mecca. And therefore, when the Prophet ﷺ gave this command, 15 people immigrated, 11 men and 4 women. 11 men and 4 women. Amongst them, the first to migrate was Uthman ibn Affan. And Uthman ibn Affan was married to, who was he married to? Ruqayya, the daughter of the Prophet And so the first couple to migrate were the Prophet's own son-in-law and his daughter. And he was followed by Uthman ibn Mad'un, another famous Sahabi. And Abdurrahman ibn Auf, the famous Sahabi whom we're all familiar with. Zubayr ibn al-Awwam, Mus'ab ibn Umair, who was the one who was uh, made shaheed in the battle of Uhud. This is Mus'ab ibn Umair. Abu Salama and his wife, Umm Salama. Right? Abu Salama would be the first Sahabi to die in Abyssinia. And Umm Salama would be left all alone without any support. She's cut off from her relatives in Mecca. And now her husband has died in a strange and foreign land. And she was under a lot of trauma. It was a complete stress for her. That she is literally cut off. And so out of mercy to her, the Prophet sent a proposal to Umm Salama. We're going to talk about that later on. So Umm Salama was actually proposed to because her husband had passed away in, uh, in uh, Abyssinia. 
and uh, a number of other uh, Sahaba. So there is 11 men and four women. Now it is unclear whether they all of them secretly immigrated or was it known that they would immigrate. Some reports seem to indicate that they left secretly and they made their way to uh, Judah, which is now called Jeddah. Uh, they made their way to, 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 to the modern port of Jeddah. And then from Jeddah, they took a ship to Abyssinia. Other reports seem to suggest that the news was spread amongst the Quraysh. And if this is true, then there's nothing uh, strange about that. Because imagine, at this point in time, the Quraysh are not expecting them to immigrate. And if the news has spread that they're immigrating, because the Quraysh have not, uh, there's no reason why they would have stopped them at this stage. Later on they will. But if the news was public, it's not, it's not impossible. It could also be the case that it was made public. And there is one report in Al-Tabarani's Al-Mu'jam, uh, which is one of the books of Hadith, that seems to suggest that the news was made public. And it is an interesting story because it involves Umar ibn al-Khattab and it shows a side of him that we're going to see later on. And it involves one of the couple's uh, emigrating. There was only four couples, right? Four women, so there was only four couples and the rest were all single male, such as uh, Uthman ibn Mar'un is not married at this time. Musa ibn Umayr was never married. He died a bachelor. So these were all uh, uh, unmarried men. So there were four couples. One of these couples, one of these couples was Amir ibn Rabi'ah and his wife Layla. Amir ibn Rabi'ah and his wife Layla. So in this book of Hadith, Mu'jam al-Tabarani, uh, it is narrated that Layla was make, packing her bags for Abyssinia and loading the camel. So this clearly means that she's doing it in public. Loading the camel and taking whatever she can to the port of Juddah. And Umar ibn al-Khattab passes by and sees that they're traveling. You don't load a camel, you're packing your bags or putting it. Uh, and so he asks, where are you traveling to? I mean, this is not the season of Rihlat al-Shita'i was-Sayf or traveling is a big deal for them. It's not like uh, I, I travel every week somewhere, every two weeks. Traveling is a very big deal for them. You know, where are you traveling to? What is this traveling for? And you can imagine she's so irritated and so angry. She's leaving her homeland and she, you know, she's, you know, packing always makes you irritated anyway, you know. And so she just barks out at him in complete anger. This is all because of you. It's all because of you. And your terrorizing of us and your persecution of us just because we want to worship Allah. Because of your persecution, we have to go somewhere else and find a land where we can worship Allah in. So she basically snapped at him. Instead of getting angry, Umar seemed to, for the first time, she saw in his eyes compassion. And he said to her, has the matter reached that level? Meaning, I never thought it was that bad. We're just torturing Bilal on the streets. I never thought it was that bad. You know, we killed Ammar or Yasser and so I never thought it was that bad. So he's not thinking. He's like, has the matter reached that level? And then he said, may Allah be with you. Makes dua for her. And he walks on his way. So she's completely flabbergasted that she sees a side of Umar that they have never seen before. So when her husband Amir ibn Rabi'ah comes home, she excitedly tells him, guess what happened? Umar ibn Khattab came by and you know, he actually had some compassion. Her husband snorted in contempt and he said, do you really think that he's going to be merciful to us and accept Islam? 
Wallahi, the donkeys of his father's house will embrace Islam before he does. Lahimaru Baytil Khattab, right? The donkeys of his father's house will embrace Islam before Umar ibn Khattab does, right? Now, subhanAllah. What happened? <laughs> Within two years, Umar ibn Khattab is a Muslim. And subhanAllah, what this shows us really is that Umar ibn Khattab, as we all know this, he had an outer hardness, but inside he was a very soft man. He had an outer strictness, sternness. But even in this stage, inside, and the same we see it in, in his Fatima's incident, right? He raises his hand and he hits his own sister. As soon as she bleeds, what happens? We're going to talk about this next week, I'm jumping the gun. But you understand? You all know the story, right? He has an inner softness in him that we expect from a good person and especially from one of the best Sahaba. Uh, and it also shows that indeed Allah will guide whomever He wills. Yani the Sahaba never expected Umar to be a Muslim. And he, the yani Amir utters a phrase which he is forgiven for, but yani he's so, like, you really think this guy's going to embrace Islam? You know, as we say in English, pigs will fly. You know, hell will freeze over. You know, he just says this verse, like, come on, get real. But Allah knows. So this also shows us that we should never, ever condemn people to hell. We should never, we don't take the, it's not our job. You know, we leave it to Allah, so Allah knows who he will be guided. Allah knows. And so, Umm Salama narrated, first person, it's in Bukhari. Umm Salama said, so we began to live in a good land with good neighbors, and we were safe with regards to our religion and did not fear any persecution. Now, number of points here. Notice that the immigrants, all of them, look at the names that I mentioned, Uthman ibn Affan, Uthman ibn Mad'oon, Mus'ab ibn Umair, uh, uh, not Zubair, but Abu Salama, Abdurrahman ibn Awf, uh, in, in fact Zubair ibn Awam, yes, he did migrate. What's common about all of them? They're all Qurayshis. They're all Qurayshis. They're all high status people, right? Why couldn't the low status immigrate? Hmm? They were slaves. They were slaves. They what? Yusuf Ali? Okay, okay. Alhamdulillah. Um, why were all of these from the noblemen of the Quraysh? Because the slaves didn't have the political luxury to emigrate, right? And this really shows us an interesting point. SubhanAllah, if you think about it, the people who needed to emigrate the most couldn't do so. Bilal could not emigrate. Ammar could not immigrate, Ibn Mas'ud could not immigrate, Khabbab could not immigrate, right? And the ones who were the most elite, Uthman ibn Affan, I mean, he was, he was the one they sent in Hudaybiyah because they know the Quraysh loved him so much they wouldn't dare hurt him, right? Remember Hudaybiyah, 10 years later. This is Uthman, they know that he is the most noble amongst them. Even Umar says, Ya Rasulullah, yani you know me, Uthman has a better position in, with them, right? So the elite of the Quraysh who are Muslim emigrate. And this shows us that, SubhanAllah, I mean the fact of the matter is that a person does have to take care of himself. And if these people, even though they're not as persecuted as the rest, but they have an opportunity to have less persecution, they should take, avail themselves to the opportunity. 
right? There's no point in them remaining and being persecuted just because there are other people who are being persecuted worse than them. You guys following this point here? There's an element of Take care of yourselves. And there's nothing un-Islamic about that. That our Prophet is telling those who have the political capability, go ahead and immigrate, right? Even though there were people who needed to immigrate worse than them. But what are you going to do? So you make the best of a bad situation. And this is, in Arabic, we, uh, there's a qa'idah, a maxim. Uh, I'm always scared using the word qa'idah. Because, you know, qa'idah of course means a, a legal maxim, a rule, right? Uh, and that's why those guys called it uh, qa'idah, because it's the base, right? But it, it, we use the word qa'idah all the time. Uh, the funny joke is that um, uh, when you teach the kids the Qur'an, what is the book that they use? Huh? <laughs> it's like, so it's like, there's a joke that if somebody sent an email that I need to teach my kid the Qaeda, right? And so it was intercepted by the FBI and it caused a huge issue. It's like, you're going to teach your kids Qaeda? It's like, no, the Nurani Qaeda is the, you know, it's a, <laughs> it's a, we're teaching them the alphabet. Um, so the point being that there's a maxim in fiqh that says uh, that uh, you basically have to choose a khafful dararain or the lesser of the two evils. You always have to go with the lesser of the two evils. You can't save everybody. You can't. Does that mean that all of them suffer? No. Well, those who can go, can go. Let them go. And let them have a better life over there. This also shows, and this is a very important point, this also shows that not all of the lands of the non-Muslims are the same. Some of the lands of the non-Muslims are peaceful. You can live there and worship Allah. And others are hostile. Mecca and Abyssinia were not the same lands. Abyssinia was a land they could emigrate to and live in peacefully. Mecca was not. And this is a very important point that we especially need to extrapolate from in our times. That not all of the lands are the same. There are lands where freedoms are guaranteed. And there are lambs where people are persecuted. And so in our religion, we have the clear-cut political notion that there are certain lands you are allowed to live in and you should live in. What is the condition? You have the freedom to worship Allah there. And if we have that freedom, then we remain law-abiding citizens of that land. And this is, I have talked about this in many lectures. The the model of the Abyssinian Muslims is a model that we here in America can benefit from. I'm not saying it's exactly the same. There's nothing, no two things are exactly the same. But I'm saying overall there is a model. And that model is what? You live as a minority in a majority non-Muslim land and you obey the laws of the land and you understand that you are citizens, you are under the government of that land. And you don't intend to overthrow the constitution of the, 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 the government. The Muslims of Abyssinia were not plotting and planning to overthrow the Najashi, were they? Right? And they were not even allowed to do this. They were entering on a visa, basically the equivalent of a visa. And that visa allowed them to live and worship and participate in the community without any problems. And therefore, this is a model that we here in America can basically emulate. A lot of the extremists are on the uh, vibe of basically you cannot live in America. It is haram to live in America. 
That is their opinion. In response, we say the Muslims were living in Abyssinia. And their goal in Abyssinia was nothing other than the freedom to worship Allah. Correct? Right? They had no political ambitions. None. And they remained there for more than a decade. And this is interesting. The Muslims in Abyssinia way after Medina was founded. In fact, not just more than a decade, they remained there for 14 years. For 14 years. Seven years after the Hijrah, the Muslims were still in Abyssinia. It was only after the Battle of Khaybar that the Prophet ﷺ sent them a letter to Ja'far. Ja'far did not participate in Badr and Uhud. Why? Because he wasn't there. Ja'far was in Abyssinia, taking care of the Muslims over there. Only after the Battle of Khaybar, and that's in the seventh year of the Hijrah, did the Prophet ﷺ send them a letter and tell them to come back. And this shows that there was a community of believers even when there was a Darul Islam in Medina. There was a community of believers living in Abyssinia even when there is a fully functioning Darul Islam. How about when there is no Darul Islam in our time and there is no Khilafah in our times? How can it possibly be wrong to live in a land where we have the freedom to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in? Also notice another point here, a very interesting point. The Prophet ﷺ described Najashi, of course his name, uh, Najashi is not his name, Najashi is his title, just like we say the Caesar, the Caesar is not the name of one emperor, it is this title, just like we say the King of England, it's the King, the Caesar, uh, uh, the, 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 the Emperor of Persia is called uh, Khusro. Uh, the, the emperor of, of, uh, of Abyssinia was called Najashi or the Negus in English. And the Najashi, his name actually was Ashuma. The actual name of his was Ashuma. The Najashi was a Christian king. And the Prophet said, this is interesting. He is a just king. Why is he a just king? Because he does not persecute his subjects and he does not interfere in their religion. Notice, allowing people the freedom to worship is considered to be a just kingdom. Now, there are some narrow-minded Muslims amongst us who think that an Islamic state is one, an, a utopic Islamic state, would be one in which all freedoms are banned of religion. You have to be a Muslim, and if you're not Muslim, then you have... A million and one uh, restrictions on you. Our Prophet is praising a Christian king, calling him a just king. Why? Because you have the freedom to worship. Now, is it possible that a Christian can be praised for this freedom and yet our Sharia tells us that we shouldn't have this freedom? Think about it. I'm just asking you to think about it. Is it possible that a Christian king can be praised? That he is a just king. He has a malikun adil. Why? Because he's not going to persecute you for your faith. The government, the government, the Islamic government, does not have the right to ban other religions. I think we're, talking about, we're talking about ideal Islamic government, if it even exists, and where, of course it doesn't exist. exist I'm talking about this utopic government that some of our uh, more narrow-minded, overzealous youngsters especially daydream about. It's, 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 it's not a real vision. 
And historically speaking, we have always had non-Muslim minorities living in Muslim lands. Always. If that were not the case, 10% of Egypt is still Coptic Christian. 10%. I mean, do you think that for 14 centuries, they have this freedom? And it is un-Islamic to infringe on those freedoms. Now, no doubt that the laws were slightly different. There's no question about that. But in essence, the government cannot ban a religion. It cannot... and. Scholars have differed, does this apply only to uh, Judaism and Christianity or other religions as well? And the correct opinion, it applies to any religion. What is the evidence for this? When the Muslims conquered Persia, the Prophet only said Jews and Christians. It's true, he said that. When the Muslims conquered Persia, the Persians were of what religion? Zoroastrians, Parsis. Zoroastrians, Majus, right? And so, they... they by unanimous consensus, and the, the Majus are fire worshippers, they are not Ahli Kitab, right? By unanimous consensus, the Muslims accepted them as basically similar to Ahli Kitab, right? And therefore, the correct opinion, and Ibn al-Qayyim, Ibn Taymiyyah mentioned this, is that this applies to any religion, even paganism. That, and this is of course the Muslims of India, the Mughals of India, they follow this position, right? That even if you're a pagan, doesn't matter. It, you, we're not going to ban the religion. No doubt there are different laws. Nobody's saying that. You know, you cannot proselytize. Clearly, yes, we, that is, you cannot proselytize to your faith. But you cannot ban the religion. You have the right to worship in your centers of worship and do uh, in your localities as you please. And this is something that the Islamic Sharia guarantees. And this shows us that the perception that many non-Muslims have of our religion and even some of our overzealous Muslim brothers, uh, this is an incorrect perception. The fact of the matter is we are guaranteed the freedom to practice uh, our faith, whatever that faith might be, in an Islamic state. Uh, and the last point that we'll mention, uh, the wisdoms of why Abyssinia was chosen. We already mentioned the number one wisdom. In the process I mentioned it. The number one wisdom is a just king. It allows you the freedom of worship. Number two, Abyssinia was familiar to the Quraysh and to the Muslims because Abyssinia, they had some trade agreements, they would go and buy and purchase there, and so they had some type of contact. It's not as if he said, go to China. They have some type of contact. Number three, it's easy passage. You go to Jeddah, which is literally a two-day, uh, day and a half walk, not too far, right? Uh, and then in the relative scale of things, it's neighboring cities, right? And then from Jeddah, you take a ship to Abyssinia, and that ship is uh, five, six, seven hours. Again, so basically, within two days, you could be in Abyssinia. It's a very short distance. It's not a faraway distance. It's much closer than even Yemen or Rome or any other place. It's a very close place. Uh, number four that they are Christians, they're not pagans. And Christians are very close to us. In fact, Allah says in the Quran, Who are they? You're going to find the closest of the people. Love to the Muslims, right? The ones who have the most love for the Muslims. Those who say we are the Christians, the followers of Jesus Christ, right? And so generally speaking, uh, Christians have been more uh, tolerant and open-minded than many of the other uh, religions. And that is why this king of Abyssinia, it is also said, by the way, and this is a, uh, we're never going to find out for sure, but there is a theory there that this king, he followed a version of Christianity that was not the common version of Christianity. Pause here for a second.
When Christians is a, a very interesting tangent, but we don't have time. We only have three minutes left, so I'm going to really summarize this. When Jesus Christ was raised up, we don't believe he died as another cross says, you know, when he was raised up, his followers and the people around him were immersed in a huge confusion. What happened to him? Where is he? And within a generation, the question came, who is he? What was he? And so one group, and these were the real disciples of Jesus Christ, like Barnabas and others, they believed, as we believe, that Jesus Christ was a prophet, a messiah, uh, that he was a noble uh, person, that he obeyed the law, he was a follower of the, of the law of Musa. Another person came along by the name of Paul, as you know, and Paul had never met Jesus Christ. He, he, he pretends, he claims to have met him. We, we think this is a lie, but he says he met him. And Paul begins teaching a version of Christianity, which is a completely different version. That you have to believe in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And most importantly, you have to believe that Jesus Christ came to abrogate the law. You don't have to follow the law. That's why the Christians don't have a, a sharia. They don't have a law. The Jews do have the halakha and the kosher. Uh, they circumcise themselves, right? The Christians, for them, these day, these version of Christians, they have no, they have no law. Even though Jesus Christ never ate pork, and Jesus Christ was circumcised, and Jesus Christ lived the life of a Jew, but uh, modern day Christians ignore this and they say, "Well, Paul says that he has basically abrogated the law." And this controversy continued for three hundred years. We never had any equivalent in our religion of who is God, because the question is who is God? Is Jesus Christ God or not? Is Jesus Christ the Son of God or not? How many gods are there? Some early Christians, believe it or not, said there are two gods. Believe it or not, there are clear Christians that said there are two. Some said there are three. Some said there's one. These are major questions, and there was a lot of controversy. One group of Christians remained firm. Modern day scholars call them uh, Jewish Christians, uh, or Messianic Jews that they considered Jesus Christ to be the Messiah, which is what we believe, right? And these were the real Muslims. One group of Christians were the Pauline Christians. And they said Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and He abrogated the law. And eventually, Paul never preached a trinity, by the way, eventually the trinity was added to this belief, that there's three gods, there are three that rule in heaven. Right? You never find this anywhere in the Old Testament. Again, even in the New Testament, with a lot of difficulty, you find some references uh, to this concept. You never find it in the words of Jesus Christ. To make a long story short, so Constantine the Emperor comes along. And this is in 321, he embraces Christianity. Right? And Constantine makes a huge council called the Council of Nicaea. And he invites all the bishops of the Christian world. The first time ever that all the bishops come together. And you have opposing factions. Some who say there's one God. Some who say there's three. Some who say he's the son of God. Some who say this. And Constantine basically makes a decree. And that is called the Creed. The Nicene Creed. And this Creed, the Nicene Creed, says there are three that rule in heaven. But these three are not three, but they are one. God, and there are three essences of the same being. Three Usawi uh, of, um, uh, of the same being. Basically, uh, I'm not a Christian theologian, so I don't want to go too deep into this. But basically, three equals one in a very simplistic manner, right? This is the Nicene Creed. Now, the main opponent of the Nicene Creed at the meeting was a man by the name of Arius. And after this meeting, Constantine says he has to be executed. Because obviously, he doesn't agree with this. Arius did not agree with the Trinity. Arius was the main opponent of the Nicene Creed. Arius fled for his life and he fled down south. 
What is down south? Somewhere, well, this is now the theory. This is the theory now. And Allah knows that he fled down. And the Nicene Creed spread to the official Roman Empire and every single version of Christianity afterwards. There's three main branches in our times, Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox, right? And then there are the modern ones, the Seventh-day Adventists and the Mormons and that. But the three classical branches, Catholics, Protestant, Orthodox, they all go back to the Nicene Creed. Those that are pre-Nicene Creed have all disappeared. There's not a single branch of Christianity that is existent in our times that was of the original pre-Nicene Creed Christianities, right? But it is legend that some small versions of it survived in pockets. This legend, I believe it, and you should believe it because it's mentioned in hadith. We mentioned some of these hadith. Remember Salman al-Farsi? Remember Salman al-Farsi? What was his story? What did his priest tell him? I don't know of anybody left upon my religion except that guy. Go to him. Remember that story? Right? And then he goes and he goes until finally when he means the last one, what does that guy say? I don't know anybody left upon our version of Christianity. Didn't he say that? Right? And that version of Christianity was true Islam. And therefore there is a theory that Ashuma Najashi was influenced by Arius' group. And therefore, when Islam came to him, that's why instantaneously, what did he say? What did, uh, what did uh, Najashi say? This comes from the same well as Jesus Christ came from. Right? He instantaneously recognized it. And this is the theory that because Arius' influence was in that part of Africa, we know this for a fact, perhaps some of those influences remained, and therefore uh, Najashi uh, was influenced by that. Final point, Najashi's grave is a well-known grave uh, in Abyssinia. It's still known to this day where it was. Uh, and uh, sadly, some people have taken it as a shrine, but it's a well-known grave, and I know a number of people that have been there and seen the grave of uh, Najashi. Inshallah, next Wednesday, we have a very, very interesting uh, halaqa where we'll talk about the quote-unquote satanic verses and what are the satanic verses. And so that is, uh, uh, inshallah, a very interesting halaqa. So make sure you come prepared with uh, paper and pen because that's going to be very academic as well. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have time for Q&A.